One or two weeks, three weeks maybe, in Old Testament studies before we get into, um, into our book study in the Old Testament. But before we start, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, help us this morning as we open your word that we will be reminded, that we'll be reminded of your grace, that we'll also be reminded, though, of your call on our lives, that we will be reminded of mercy. <clears throat> But we also be reminded of the claim that you have. That we will be reminded of your love. But we will also be reminded that we <clears throat> have been called to a different kingdom. And that that kingdom looks like something. And so as we look at our study this morning, that we will be reminded of all these things, most of all, that we will be reminded that you are God and that what you have given us and are giving us and continue to promise to give us encapsulated into the person of Jesus Christ is more beautiful and more wondrous and more amazing than anything else. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us, that our hearts will be in agreement with that. In your name I pray. Amen. So we are in <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 2 this morning. We're going to read the entirety of the, of the chapter. It's a long chapter, but we're going to read the entirety. You thought I was going to say the entirety of the book, right? No, we're not going to read the entirety of the book. We're going to read the entirety of chapter 2. We're only going to look at one section of chapter 2. But I hope that as we go through the section we're actually going to go through, that just in the reading it will prompt your thinking to study the entirety of the chapter. This chapter is an amazing chapter, powerful chapter. There's some, some verses in here that will be familiar probably to you. And one of the things we have to say, though, before we get into chapter 2 is this. Um, Old Testament is, is kind of challenging to study. It just is. Um, and the Old Testament... I think one of the reasons why the Old Testament is challenging to study is not the way we typically think of it. <clears throat> the Old Testament is not primarily tough to study or difficult to study because it's such a foreign thing to us. Although I would argue it is foreign to us in a lot of ways because we have, I think, to our own detriment, ignored the 39 books of the Old Testament. And I think that's a dangerous thing to do. I love the Old Testament immensely. I, I find the Old Testament amazing. But I think we have denied it for too long. Uh, to our own detriment. As in, we consider ourselves post-Christ death and resurrection, which is true, we are. And so therefore we turn most primarily to the New Testament. <clears throat> but I want to remind you that, that Jesus didn't say, I've canceled out the Old Testament. He didn't do that at all. The Old Testament is an incredibly valuable section of what we call the Bible. But I don't think that's the big reason why we don't look at the Old Testament because it's foreign to us. We're not Israel, as it were, physically speaking. We're not genetically Jews. Um, 
we look we, we tend not to look at it because also because you know the the law is there and so we don't want to look at the at the law per se um and i remember many times hearing christians say well i certainly am glad we don't live under that anymore as if as if somehow we can now be antinomian you know no law no anything just you know let your let your feelings guide you luke type of thing you know <clears throat> which isn't the case at all Frankly, I think the big reason why we ignore the Old Testament is because the Old Testament's really painful. I think it's primarily why we don't look at the Old Testament much, we don't read it much. Frankly, it's, it's pretty painful. It's hard to read. But it's not hard to read because of the language or the sentence structure. It's hard to read because you and I both know when we read it, we're going to see ourselves reflected in it. In fact, I would argue that we find ourselves oftentimes more reflected in the Old Testament than the New Testament. Because as much as we like to say the Israelites are very different from us, they're really not. Certainly we're in a different setting. We, we call it, we're in this already not yet time frame. Correct? Christ has come. He's fulfilled the law. He's paid the penalty for sin. He stood in our place and he's placed us in his place. Amen? That's awesome. And yet we still wait for that time when Christ is to come. But the painful part is our waiting oftentimes looks a whole lot like Israel. Doesn't it? And that's where the painful part of the Old Testament comes in. Because we have to acknowledge that the Old Testament people, in a very real way, were waiting for, the Old Testament Israelites were waiting for what? For the Messiah. Well, that's not much different from us, is it? Are we not waiting for the Messiah? Of course we are. We're waiting for the Messiah. And so in a very real way, we find ourselves in the same setting as Israel is. Now the difference for us is he's already come, but yet he has yet to come. For them, it was pure he has yet to come. The promise was there, but it had not yet been fulfilled. There have been types of, 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 of Messiah's come to picture in an imperfect way, the perfect Messiah to come to encourage them. But the Messiah himself had not yet come. And again, I think that's what makes the Old Testament so much more painful to read. Is because they only had the promises of God to cling to. We have the promises of God to cling to, but we have the reality too, don't we? And that's what makes it so painful is too often if we read the Old Testament, what we find is ourselves on those pages. And that's what's horrifying about the Old Testament, frankly, is how is it possible that we who are in the already, not yet part, can act like those who and live like those who we're in the not yet. We're in the already not yet, and too often we look just like and think just like and function just like those who were in the not yet. And that can be horrifying. That can be troubling to our very soul. Painful. We don't want to hear that. 
kind of like somebody who has a lump and they don't want to go to the doctor. Why don't they want to go to the doctor? Because they don't want to hear what the doctor's going to tell them. As if somehow if I don't hear it, everything's okay. So they don't go to the doctor because of the emotional and reality pain that will sink in when they hear it. We don't go to the Old Testament because we don't want to hear it. But at the same time, it's in hearing it that now we can move into what? Repentant change and repentant worship. Which, isn't that exactly what he's calling us to? Isn't it? Every step of the way. And by the way, that's New Testament as well. But I find it most stark and most painful and most real and most hard-hitting in the Old Testament. I think that's why I love the Old Testament so much. I just read this morning by, by Ryle. This isn't an exact quote, but Ryle said this. The church has too, for t- far too long preached the beauty and the benefits and the wonder of the gospel and have far too long ignored the calls and the challenges and the convictions and the demands of the gospel. And his argument wasn't that we ignore one versus the other. We've done that. His argument is the true gospel involves both, doesn't it? You can't miss it, even in the New Testament, right? In the New Testament, what do you see? You see amazingly beautiful declarations of the gospel. For example, Romans 1 through 11, 320 through 11. Isn't it beautiful? But even in the midst of that, what do you see? What then? Shall we sin that grace may abound? And the warnings that pour out of that, we looked at Hebrews, what do we see? We saw 13 chapters of gospel, didn't we? And that 13 chapters of gospel, what do we see? The beauty of who Jesus Christ is. The amazement of what he's accomplished, didn't we? I mean, it was stunning. The vista was stunning, wasn't it? But you remember the last couple of verses of 13? What did the writer of Hebrews say? He called it the book of Hebrews what? And exhortation, didn't he? He called it an exhortation because he's exhorting the the reader to respond to that truth. And why is he calling it exhortation? The reason why he's calling it an exhortation is because the receivers of this letter called the letter of Hebrews isn't responding to those beauties. They're not responding to that, that, that beautiful vista. That's the problem. So it's even there in the New Testament as well, but I find it most stark in the Old Testament. I hope that makes sense a little bit. We're going to see that when we get into our Old Testament book study as well. Perhaps the best way to grapple with it is by reading the entirety of the chapter, and then we're going to look at one section of the chapter. But again, as we read, I want you to listen to it. I know it's a long section. If you start getting a little tired and distracted, stand up, do something. Keep, keep focused. It's okay. Go back and do jumping jacks if you have to. Stay focused. And maybe there's going to be some verses in here that's really going to catch your attention. You're like, what? Some of the verses you may say, I don't get that. And that's okay. That's a, when you don't get something, you know what that means? Something for you to wrestle with. Maybe there's going to be some things you get, but it's really going to convict you or challenge you. 
Go back and study it. Helpful. It's good. So let's start in verse 1 of chapter 2 of the book of Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go, proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus saith the Lord. I remember your devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declared the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. O house of Israel, I'm sorry, house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel, thus says the Lord. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? And went after worthlessness and became worthless. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land where none passes through, where no man dwells? And I brought you into a, a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Whose hand, those, whose hand, those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that, did not, that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Certainly 13 should be pretty common to us. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tapanese have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself, forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now, what do you gain by going to Egypt? to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. For long ago, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, 
I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I am not unclean. I have not gone, before, gone after the Baals. Look after your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness. In her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seeks her need weary themselves. In her mouth, in her month, they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they shall say, Arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise, if they can save you, in your time of trouble. For, they, for as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. Why do you contend with me? You've all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain I have struck your children. They took no correction. You, or I'm sorry, your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say, we are free? We will come no more to you. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How well you direct your course to seek love, so that even to wicked women you have taught your ways. Also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You do not find them breaking in. Yet in spite of all these things, you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. By the way, if I may pause there, does that not sound, Ken, like 1 John 1? That's what we study in men's Bible study. <clears throat> Verse 36, how much, how much you go about changing your way. You shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. From it too you will come away with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those whom you trust. And you will not prosper by them. Jeremiah chapter 2. Powerful chapter, isn't it? I mean, in Jeremiah chapter 2 what you find is if I may use the term, uh, it is God through the prophet Jeremiah pulling out the stops. Warning Judah. 
warning the remnant, the, the, the few remnant of Israel to the direction they're on. I want to remind you, before we actually look at the section I want to look at this morning, <clears throat> a couple things. He's writing to a people. They're called Hebrews, or now they're called Israel. More importantly, they're called Judah. The two southern tribes. The ten northern tribes have been taken captive, and they're off in nowhere land. They were taken captive by Assyria in 722 B.C. That's important. It'll come up in just a little bit. But more importantly at this point is that we understand that God through Jeremiah is communicating with his covenant people. We must not divorce that understanding from the text. He's writing to his covenant people. The people that in Abraham's day he cut a covenant with. A covenant of life and peace. He's writing to the descendants who are still covenant people of those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses. He's writing to the children of those, to the children of the children of those who died in the wilderness. And the children of the children, actually great-great-grandchildren, so to speak, that <clears throat> entered into the land. They were blessed with the land and conquered the land. He's writing to a group of people who, if they just merely look at their history, they know that God has always been faithful to his covenant. He's always been faithful to his people. It's important at the same time that we remember <clears throat> that he's writing to a people who he's later said that not all Israel is Israel, but God will keep and preserve a faithful remnant. And we know that the vast majority of people who have been called Israel we are, were not spiritual Israel. And the New Testament makes it very clear, and this is why I think it's very important that we see the connection here, <clears throat> that just as not all Israel was Israel in the Old Testament, not all Christian is Christian. Now I'd argue, you can say, well, yeah, of course, Steve, we've got all the liberal Christianity. They're not Christian. I think he's, it's, he's cutting it a lot tighter than that. A whole lot tighter than that. And we, we can't miss it. All you've got to do is go to, go to the book of Malachi to know that we're not talking about people who have carte blanche rejected everything but the title. In Malachi, they weren't people who rejected everything except for the title of being God, God's covenant people. They were still sacrificing, <laughs> weren't they? They were sacrificing furiously. But they were sacrificing unacceptable sacrifices. But they're still going to the temple. They're still worshiping. They were still doing the stuff. They were just compromising everywhere. Because their heart was after something else. Or to go into the New Testament, they had a form of godliness, but denied it the power thereof, 2 Timothy chapter 3. They had a form of godliness, but they denied its power. 
And by the way, the Second Timothy chapter three, just to show a connection between Old and New Testament, in Second Timothy chapter three, Paul is writing to Timothy with regard to the church in the last days. He's saying this is what the church in the last days is going to look like in those nine verses. And what Timothy is, what Paul is basically describing to Timothy is this: the church will look just like Israel in the Old Testament. That's what he's basically saying. It's going to look just like Israel in the Old Testament. So be aware, Timothy. That's what it's going to look like. That's the way the church is going to be. And that's why Paul goes on to say, but you, Timothy, cling. Cling to what you know, what you've learned, what you've become convinced of. Cling to the truth of who God is, who Christ is, what Christ has accomplished, what his call is. Cling to it. Even if nobody else does, you, Timothy, you cling to it. Because the last days, as you preach the word, be added in season, out of season, chapter 4, reprove, rebuke with great patience and with long suffering. Because in the last days, the people will gather together people to tickle their itching ears. They don't want the sound doctrine anymore. They don't want it. Boy, that sounds an awful lot like the Old Testament, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It sounds an awful lot like the Old Testament Jews. Old Testament Israel. Jeremiah's day. So the correlation between the setting then and the setting today is pretty stark and pretty dramatic. Again, I'd encourage you to, in your time, your own time, to look at the entirety of this chapter because there's a whole lot he's saying in here. But I just want to look at verses 14 through 19 this morning. So let me read 14 and 19 again to you. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? What we're going to do is we're going to go through this section, and we're going to go through it two ways. First, I'm just going to go through it in its historical setting. Then we're going to go back and try to make some application. Does that make sense? So we're going to have a little history study as we work our way through. So I, rather than reading 14 and 19 entirely, I'm going to read it piecemeal. So verse 14 again, is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? We have, we have three questions here in verse 19 with regard to Israel. Is Israel a slave? Well, the answer is, well, it should be what? No. Why? Because God rescued them out of Egypt. Not a slave. Correct? Not a slave. That's the answer. Israel's not a slave. Is Israel a home-born servant? No. The, the answer is obvious if you know the Old Testament at all. He rescued them for a what? To have a loving, caring relationship with them, didn't he? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, if those two answers are correct, and they are, then the third question is eye-popping. Is Israel a slave? Well, no. Is he a home-born servant? No. And by the way, home-born is referencing home. And Israel's home is in God. So the answer is no. So two very strong no's. Comes to the third question, why then has he become a prey? Now, this 
Third question is dramatic. Because if he's not a slave, and if he's not a homeborn servant, then the third question should be obvious. You see, if he's a slave, frankly, the owners of slaves don't care much what happens to slaves. Because the slave is worn out, because it's just property. If he's worn out, what do you do? He's expendable, you just replace him. If he's stolen from you, you just replace him. There's not much value in the slave other than the product he produces. That's it. But if the first two answers are no, then we need to remember who, again, what I just said, Israel really was. Israel really was in that relationship of love and peace and life with their God, with with Yahweh that rescued them, that bought them out, that redeemed them, the Bible says. Well, if that is true, okay, then how is it possible that they could be a prey? How is it possible? And the idea of them being prey means there's some sort of predator that's having success. Does that make sense? How is it possible that they could be in the position of being a prey? How is it possible that they could be, to use a different term, how is it possible they could be exposed? How is it possible they could be exposed to this this predator-prey danger? There's only two answers. We're going to discover the first answer is not the answer. The second answer is. The first answer is God ain't much. He's not very powerful. He's not able to protect his people. He's not able to protect the ones he loves. Well, that answer's not it. There must be some other answer. And the second answer is what 15 through 19 is going to present. And it's already been presented in 1 through 13 as well. So how is it possible that he could possibly become a prey? How is it possible that someone or some ones or some things can act like an effective predator on Israel? Verse 15. The lions have roared against him. They have roared, they've roared loudly. And then we discover in verse 15, it's not just roaring as in making a bunch of noise, is it? Right? Because you see at the end of verse 15, what? They've made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Sounds like the predator is not merely making noise, does it? Sounds like the predator's been effective, right? What is Jeremiah referencing here? Well, he's referencing the ten ten northern tribes. How is it possible they could become prey? How is it possible they can become so dramatically exposed to the predator? How, how dramatically per- exposed have they become? What was it saying? They don't have a land. The, the cities are decimated. They're piles of rubble. And there's nobody living there anymore. 
the 10 northern tribes have been absolutely decimated. According to history and according to the scriptures, both the 10 northern tribes were attacked by Assyria. And they were defeated. And Assyria, you think, you think World War II, the Germans were bad? The Assyrians took the 10 northern tribes captive, absolutely decimated the land so that it is uninhabitable, took every single person and either killed them outright or took them off into captivity and they were never heard from again. You realize that? Not one person escaped that captivity. Not one. They were all destroyed. Now there was some remnant that were in these two southern tribes. They were, they were down there, maybe they were visiting, or maybe they were, had, had, were living there, but they were, they were, at that point in time, they still knew which tribe they were from. And so there were some in the, in the two southern tribes that, that survived. But any that were in the two northern tribes, when the invasion took place, gone. Destroyed. And the best thing that could have happened to them, frankly, if you know the history of Assyria and their warring history and their barbarism, best thing that could have happened to them is they got hit by an arrow during the war itself. To be led captive is the worst nightmare in the world. The horrors of what they went through before they were all destroyed. The lions have roared against him. They've roared loudly. They've made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Why'd that happen? Well, go back to verse 14. If I may just look at 14 briefly again. Is Israel a slave? Is he home, a home-born servant? Why then does he become a prey? Why indeed? Well, the answer is obvious. Especially, that's why we read all of chapter 2. He's not a slave. He's not a home-born servant. But you know what Israel did? Israel lived like that. Israel, according to uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, Israel said it's better to live. Now, they would never use these kind of words. They never would have used these kind of words. We want to live like a slave. We want to live like a home-born servant. That's why they became a prey. We don't, or to put it a different way, we don't want to live as God's covenant people. We find no interest, no beauty, no, no value in being God's special people, in being God's called out people, in being God's loved people in being God's cherished people, we find no value. Goes on to verse, 15, verse 16. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tahapanes have shaved the crown of your head. <clears throat> the picture in verse 16 is a simple picture of humility. They have absolutely absolutely humiliated you. You wanted it. 
You got it in spades. That's what he's saying. Verse 17, God, through Jeremiah, makes it really clear. Have you not brought this upon yourself? Why? Why? How? How could they have brought it upon themselves? By forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Now, all we've got to do is stop for a moment, looking backwards, because we've got, we've got the biblical recorded history, right? It's pretty clear. It's pretty clear what they did. What did they do? Well, they forsook the Lord their God when he led them in their way. Well, in the way. Well, what, how, did, how did they do that? Well, it's really simple. It's really simple. See, we've got 2020 vision with regard to the recorded history, don't we? It's really simple. God spoke, they what? They rebelled, or they didn't listen, or they didn't follow. Use whatever terms you want. God spoke, and they didn't listen. And he did it a number of ways, didn't, didn't they? They did it all sorts of ways. You see it every step of the way. Moses would speak, they would not listen, they would not follow. Joshua would speak, and they wouldn't what? They wouldn't listen, they wouldn't follow. God raised up a bunch of judges. Some were good judges. But generally speaking, overall, the people what? They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't obey. They wouldn't respond. They wouldn't repent. Or if they did, it was this short-term, not-in-the-heart response. Not-from-the-heart response. And so God did what? God sent prophets. And the prophets wrote. And they spoke. And in some cases, they acted. They displayed visually illustrations of the way the people were living. And the people did what? Yeah, Stephen says, which one of the prophets didn't you kill? Amazing. Maybe when they didn't kill him, they didn't listen. I mean, even Jeremiah himself, he's called the weeping prophet. Why is he weeping? Any idea? Why is he weeping? Because no one listens. No he's calling, he's giving a simple message. And the simple message is something with one word. The simple message is return. He's calling them to return. That includes the idea of repentance, following and worshiping God. Return. He says it over and over again. Return to God. He'll return to you. Jeremiah, even at one point, as a visual illustration, right next door in Gilead, there's an eye salve that they're making to, to cure eye diseases. And he says, is there no balm in Gilead? It's right there. It's right there. And yet you, you refuse to go. That's the theme of Jeremiah's life. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, and Amos, and Obadiah, and Jonah. Not Jonah, he, he was off somewhere else. <laughs> Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. They're all the same, aren't they? Every step of the way. It's heartbreaking. 
it's absolutely heartbreaking. And what, what Jeremiah is saying, have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord, your God, when he led you in the way? He continually led them in the way. He continually, mercifully pointed them the way. Said, this is the way, walking in. Don't turn left, don't turn right. When you hear the prophet behind you saying that, go in that way. And what do they do? Over and over and over they go a different way. Over and over they believe a lie. Over and over, they, 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 they follow their lusts, which later in the chapter talks about. It happens just like unbelievably often. I mean, it's cringeworthy. And yet he was still merciful to them, verse 17. He still continued to try to lead them in, their way, in the way. And it's interesting, if I may just spread out to the bigger context of Jeremiah chapter 2, what you find is even in this, Jeremiah interacts with the people because the people are saying, what are you talking about, Jeremiah? That's not it, us. He talks about all the worship of the high places, which is where all the idolatrous prostitution and, and worship of the foreign gods would take place up on the top of the mountains. And, and there's, there's these people who are saying, what are you talking about, Jeremiah? That's not us. And he's saying over and over and over again, no, 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 you missed the point. That's not us. He says, no, you missed the point. Whether you're going to the high places or not, it's you. Because you may not be going to the high places. You're just giving yourself away in the low places somewhere else. You're still giving your heart away. You see, what my point is, it is interesting how often when the, when the Old Testament prophets spoke how often and it was like almost always that the recipients of the message would hear what had to be said and excuse themselves they would excuse themselves instead of allowing the tidal wave of God's call to return to overwhelm them they would excuse themselves and say, well, that's not us. Yeah, those people up on the high places, yeah, that's them, that's not us. No matter what. No, we don't fit in that paradigm. Always trying to excuse. Always trying to deflect. That's what they're doing. But the simple statement is, have you not brought this upon yourself, Israel, by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Now, Certainly, Jeremiah is speaking to the remnant that remain in, uh, uh, of the Israelites, but he's also primarily speaking to Judah. It's interesting what he does in verse 18. Because the reason why he's referencing, and, and uh, Jeremiah does this quite often, he references Israel because he's trying to make a point to Judah. Not to live like Israel, not to live like the ten northern tribes. You're the remnant. You're the two remaining tribes. Don't live like the ten. Look what happened to them. Now, history shows us that they didn't heed that warning. But verse 18 is interesting. As he speaks to Judah, now, and now, what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Interesting two sets of questions, or a set of two questions, isn't it? 
very interesting set of two questions. On the one question, he asks about the rivers of Egypt. And on the other question, he asks about the river Euphrates in Assyria. So you got the Nile and Euphrates. Interesting. One is, both are looking backwards. He asks the question simply enough, now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? What does that pop in your brain thought-wise in the history of Israel, the Hebrew people? Yeah, what are they talking about? They're saying the people of Israel, when they left, or the, I'm sorry, the Hebrew people, when they left, when they were rescued out of slavery in Egypt, and they got to the Red Sea, what's the first thing they said to Moses? We should go back. We should never have left. And then, after God miraculously opens the, the, the Red Sea and protects them and helps them to cross and dry land and kills the Egyptian army by drowning them, Shortly thereafter, they find themselves doing what again? We should have gone back. There's no food. There's no water. And on and on and on. Aren't they? And it's, it's just a constant refrain. You know what they're saying? They're saying life was better in Egypt. Life was better when we were in Egypt. And so Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah is asking or challenging in question form, the children that remain, the Hebrew people that remain, ask themselves a really important question. What do you hope to gain by drinking the waters of the Nile? Going back to Egypt and drinking the waters of the Nile. Oh, the Egyptian people may really like the waters of the Nile. They may really like that and all that symbolizes being in Egypt and all that. But what do you have to gain? What do you get if you go back to Egypt? I suspect there's not a whole lot of we should have never left Egypt going on. This is a picture. At this point in time, I don't think the Jews are anymore saying, man, we should have never left Egypt. It's just a picture. It, 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 it's, a, it's to prime the pump of thinking for the Jewish people. It's not about literally going back to Egypt. It's like... What he's, what he's saying, what do you have to gain by becoming a slave? What do, you, what do you have to gain from that? What do you have to gain from being a slave? And then what he does next is even more intriguing because you know how we like to, and we all do this, right? We like to clean up our history. We like to repaint it with new colors so it looks a lot better than it really was. Don't we? We try to clear it all up and make it look really pretty. It amazed me, if I use the illustration, it amazed me how often um, I've, I've known numerous times where uh, a woman was involved in an abusive relationship with her husband. And then he dies. And he was really abusive. But then after he dies, shortly thereafter, the storyline begins to change. Before you know it, her husband was a really nice guy. He's a real loving guy, a caring guy. He took care of her. And I'm, I'm like, what? what in the world is this all about? Bizarre. But it happens all the time. We like to color the painting differently after the fact. And so the writer of this book, chapter 2, Jeremiah, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, is saying, no, we're not going to repaint. What's in it for you to be a slave? 
What's so great about being a slave like they were in Egypt? Like your ancestors were in Egypt. What's so great about that? But just in case you've colored the picture too much, you've recolored it too much, he gives you a second question, Israel. The second question is earth-shaking. Because in the second question, he says, or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? See, Egypt is way back in the past. But Euphrates is right there. This is their generation. The idea, the picture of going to Assyria, what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink of the Euphrates? is calling the people of Judah to look at Assyria. And more importantly, look at the ten northern tribes. And they know what happened to them. They know. They know it's fresh in their mind, can't repaint it. All they've got to do is walk up to the border and look. And the smoke may even still be rising in the horizon. It's uninhabitable. It's a moonscape. You see, not only did Assyria come down and take all the people captive and destroy all the buildings, all the houses and walls, they also tore up all the roads and they also cut down every single tree. There's nothing but a moonscape up there at this point in time. And so God's establishing through Jeremiah a contrast between this loving, gracious, merciful, wonderful, caring relationship that they have with their God. With the alternative. What's the alternative? Assyria. Death. Horror. Hopelessness. What do you have to gain? Jeremiah, God, actually wants the people that remain to not just merely read over those verses, but really wrestle with it. To literally answer the question. What do you have to gain from that? And the, the, the unasked question, it's not asked here, it is asked elsewhere, but not here. The unasked question then is the third question. And the third question is, what do you have to gain by, ready? What do you have to gain by drinking from the river, or from, I'm sorry, sorry, from the fountain of living streams? Verse 13. That's the question. The unasked question that is in the context very clearly here. What do you have to gain, Israel, remnant? What do you have to gain from drinking from Egypt, from the, from the Nile in Egypt? What do you have to gain from drinking from the Euphrates in Assyria? What do you have to gain? The answer is really clear. If you look at the history, it's really clear. The unasked question, what do you have to gain from drinking from the fountain of living waters? 
And the writer of this book, Jeremiah, ultimately the Lord himself, is expecting the reader to answer those questions. The only thing that's acceptable is answering the questions. And the questions must be answered specifically. It can't be answered broad-brushedly. God would not accept that. He moves on. Verse 19, he says this, Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. Verse 19. Jeremiah turns into a prophet that prophesies the future. And what does he say? In effect, you know what he's saying in verse 19? He's saying you're not going to answer the questions. You're not going to answer them. I know it already. You're not going to answer. And they didn't. You're not going to answer them. That's what he says in verse 19. Your evil will chastise you. But it wouldn't chastise them if they return, if they repent and return, right? They would be blessed because they'd be drinking from the fountains of the living waters. Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Or to put it a different way, you're going to dance and you're going to have to pay the band. That's what he's saying in the modern vernacular. Because you refuse to repent to return, you will dance. And you have to pay the band. And the argument Jeremiah gives the people is you can't afford the cost. You can't afford the, pay, the, the bill. You just can't. So that's why he goes on and says, know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. What is Jeremiah drawing them to? When he says, know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God, he's saying, even if you merely open your physical eyes, that's what he's saying, even if you just merely, forget the eyes of your heart for a second, (laughs) even if you just open your physical eyes and look north, you know bitter to forsake the Lord. You know the cost is too high. You know the juice isn't worth the squeeze. You know that the Nile and the Euphrates will never, ever, what? Satisfy. Because the Nile, in its context, the Nile and the Euphrates are just another picture of cisterns that can what? Hold no water. It will merely be discovered as evil and bitterness. So he says, know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. And then he declares what the primary problem is. At the end of verse 19, what's the primary problem? The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. And don't miss his words. 
He says, the fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of what? Hosts. And you all know that means armies. He says, the fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of the most powerful army ever. And it's a heavenly army. And there's nothing and no one that can withstand the onslaught. That's what he's saying. And you, he says to the, the two remaining tribes and any remnant that is still in those two tribes from the ten northern tribes, he says, and you don't fear the one, only one who is to be feared. You don't fear the only one who is to be feared. You see, we too often in our New Testament setting have taken away the literal idea of fear. I've heard people talk all the time about fear doesn't mean fear in the New Testament. Fear means reverential awe. It means those type of things. And it does. But it also means fear. It also means fear. It absolutely does. They meant it in the Old Testament. It means it in the New Testament. Fear means fear. We can't miss that. Here he's saying, you don't fear me, says the Lord God of hosts. If you should fear anything, you should fear, he's saying, my discipline. If you fear anything, you ought to fear when I come for correcting. Because I bought you. You belong to me. That's what he's saying to them. But you don't. What's driving all this? What drives a people to say, we'd rather be slaves than be in this loving relationship with, with our God? They don't fear him. Another way to put it, they take him casually. They're flipping about it. They pursue him when it's convenient. Or when we find out later in the context, once the Lord God of hosts shows up, then they pursue him. But he says here, no, why don't you just go ahead and call your other gods and have them protect you from me. <laughs> you wanted them. Now see how that works for you. It's a shocking thing. This is the God that has bought us. This is the God that has saved us. This is the God who has redeemed us. It's the God who is in a covenant relationship with us. This is a God who's returning for us. But he's only returning for the remnant. That's it. So how do we take this passage and bring it to us as we've been looking at it historically? Well, it's really simple. Let me ask you a quick question. Several questions. Is redeeming Grace Baptist Church a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? If not, then why has he become a prey? Well, I'm asking the question because it's a biblical question for us to wrestle with. But let me just say real quickly before we move past that statement, let us not fall into the trap of saying, yeah, but we're not like those, which is where we want to go so bad. We always do. 
well, I, we, we, we're not doing this and this and this and this and this and that. No, you're not going to the high places. But in the low places, you're not worshiping me, you're worshiping something else. That's what, that's what Jeremiah says. So it's important we see that. You ever see people who claim to be believers and they're not living like it and their lives come to pieces, the wheels come off? I have. I have. But God's merciful. Doesn't do that very regularly, does he? But he has. Perhaps he hasn't done it as regularly as we would expect because maybe he's dealing with, so to speak, the, the two southern tribes and still calling them. But really, let's jump down to verse 17. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you by the way, or led you in the way? Which begs the question for you and I to ask ourselves some really important other questions. Here's, here's the question we need to ask ourselves. <clears throat> if we're going to look at verse 17 and apply it to our lives today, who we are today. Corporately, personally, both. Is God, first question, this is a number of questions. Is God leading us in the way? That's an easy question. Is God leading us today? Is God leading Christians in the way? Of course he is. He's given us the word, and he's given us the Holy Spirit, right? He's given us the word, he's given us the Holy Spirit. So we know he's, le he's leading us in the way, right? Okay, so there's only one other question that we need to ask then in verse 17. <clears throat> Have we not brought this upon ourselves, if we brought anything upon ourselves, by forsaking the Lord our God? Which begs this. It, it makes us ask this question. Am I someone who is humbly, lovingly responding to the one who first loved me by what? What? Loving him by what? According to this verse, verse 17. By actually walking in the way. He's leading us in the way, right? I'm trying to be as tight as possible to the passage. Am I someone who is actually walking in the way? You see, because this is the point of verse 17. Either I'm walking in the way, or I'm what? Forsaking him. That's the point of verse 17. Either you're walking in the way, because he's, he's bringing us into the way, right? Either I'm walking in the way because he's showing us the way, or I'm forsaking him. It's one or the other. Now, I know, we all forsake him. I get it. We can't deny that in the scriptures. It's very clear. We all do, right? We wander astray. We forget him. We reject him. We ignore him. We sin. But one who is not forsaking him and is walking in the way is one who's repentant. The theme with Jeremiah again is to return. And they're unwilling to return. So that's the real issue here in verse 17. That's the, that's, that's the rubber meeting the road point. We know, firstly, he's leading us in the way. We know that. 
the question is going in the way. It wasn't mean to be in the way. I'm repenting, because I, I certainly, I'm like, woo. If I may go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where he talks about he's leading us in triumphal procession. You know what my tendency is in that triumphal procession? He's leading me. Who deserves all the glory in this ticker tape parade? Jesus Christ does. Who deserves none? Me. That's pretty clear. But you know, in that, in that leading us in triumphal procession, you know what I keep doing? Here's what I keep doing is we're going to this triumphal procession, ticker tape parade, and I'm following him. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I'm in the parade. And I'm drawing attention to myself, right? Isn't that what I do? Isn't that what we all do? Of course it's what we all do. We're constantly doing that, aren't we? We didn't earn that right to be in that parade, did we? What did we do? All we did is sin. That's what we brought to the table was sin, right? The picture is that those who are in that parade are captives. <laughs> we didn't do anything. We were rescued from the kingdom of darkness. All glory, all praise goes to him. But you know, when I'm in this ticker tape prayer, I'm like, yeah, that's right to me. Yeah, glory to me. That's right, glory to me. And I turn around, as I'm turning from this side to go to that side, I see Jesus, and I'm like, oh. Please forgive me. And I begin to worship. And before long, what do I start doing? <laughs> Aren't I great? And I see him again. That's what it looks like to walk in the way. You know what forsaking is? Forsaking is, I'm in the ticker tape parade, supposedly, and I'm like, hey, next thing you know, I'm off the parade ground, I'm shaking people's hands, I'm hanging out over here, and you should be over there, I oh, shut up. And I'm hanging out over here, somebody else is like, Steve, Steve, you, you, you need to be over there. And, and the head dude, Jesus, he's calling me. And I'm like, blocks over. I can't even hear the din anymore. Got a cold heart. Got a hard heart. My dull ears, I don't even care. What happens? Either we're in the way or we're forsaking our Lord. Verse 18, we've got to ask ourselves some questions. The questions we need to ask ourselves, uh, we don't have the Nile and Euphrates to deal with, right? They're just pictures. What do we have? Well, it's pretty simple. What God wants us to ask ourselves is this. What is it I keep looking to for satisfaction? What do I keep looking to for fulfillment? What really moves me? What really is my reason for doing what I do? What's my purpose 
for doing this, going here, saying that, doing these other things, thinking these ways. What's the reason? What is it? Is it Nile and Euphrates stuff? Or verse 13, cisterns that can hold no water stuff. What do I actually think I'm going to gain from all that? What do I gain? What's the yield? What's the value? See, God wants us to actually ask those kind of questions. I'm after stuff. I'm after finances. I'm after fame. I'm after... Uh, job promotions, I'm after comfort and ease, I'm after safety, I'm after uh, health, I'm after relationships, I'm after fill in the blank. Why? That's the question. Why? Why? What do you have to gain? See, if it's not for Christ, are we not going back to slavery? Aren't we? It's pure and simple slavery. I become a slave to my job. I become a slave to the relationships. I become a slave to my, to my safety. I become a slave to my whatever, fill in the blank. What do I have to gain? By going back to the things that have destroyed everyone who's ever touched it. What do I have to gain? Then we need to ask ourselves, what do I have to gain from the fountain of living water? What do I have to gain in this or that or something else? That's what the questions need to be asked. Because if not, if the questions aren't asked and answered repentantly, the end result, verse 19, your evil will chastise you. We don't repent and return to the way. There's only one thing left. Do you realize that? There's only one thing left. Your evil will chastise you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. Now we could say again, well that's Old Testament stuff, Steve. We're in the age of grace, aren't we? Yes, so are they. They were, God was gracious back then, too. Are we not in the age of grace? Yeah, but in the age of grace, what did God say in Hebrews chapter 12? Did he not say the exact same thing we see here? He did the exact same thing. Your evil is going to just, it's going to chastise you. And you're going to discover ultimately what? Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to say, forsake the Lord your God. What does it say in Hebrews chapter 12? When you think you're doing really well, ask yourself this really, this really important question. Have you, have you fought against sin to the point of shedding blood? That's what he said, he said in Hebrews. And the answer obviously is what? No. And so what does he say next? The reason why you haven't, he says, is because you, if I may quote Jeremiah, because you've forsaken him. You've forgotten, he says in Hebrews. They're like parallel passages. And then the writer of Hebrews ushers in, for whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And you know what? When he disciplines, we discover what? What do we discover when the Lord disciplines us? Well, we discover, according to the text, 
obviously in Hebrews, that if you respond rightly to it, it yields what? The peaceable fruit of righteousness. But in order to get to the peaceable fruit of righteousness, what do we have to discover? Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. And the reason why we do is because the fear of God is not in us. That's why we have to be disciplined. <laughs> he disciplines us for our own good so that the fear of the Lord will be in us and the result ultimately is peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, the sad thing about Jeremiah is there's no hope for that in Jeremiah. But for you and I today, there is stunning hope. Amazing hope because of Jesus Christ. If we're truly His. Now, we'd argue that these people are, are not really His. Those who perish were not His. And most of those in the two southern tribes are not his either. But we're truly his. He disciplines us. And we do respond rightly. And we fear the Lord. And we embrace the bitter results of our sin. But you know what? If we're really truly his also, we could argue. Here's something that's really interesting. Unlike with Jeremiah, if we're truly his... The Lord God of hosts never visits us. He never visits us. Oh, the Lord God does. Not the Lord God of hosts. He never does. He disciplines those he what? He disciplines those he loves. He disciplines those he loves. The Lord God of hosts doesn't visit those he loves. Lord God of hosts joins in to oppose those who are against his children. The question, obviously, is are we a child or not? Are we, in his way? are we in the way or not? He's leading us in the way. Are we in the way? Are we way far off? When the Lord loves, he disciplines. And by the way, we even see in this text amazing mercy and grace of God. Because he's still calling them here, isn't he? He's still calling them back. Even though at the end, verse 19, he prophesies that they're, that they're not going to. He's still calling, isn't he? I mean, there's a faithful remnant he's calling specifically to. But he's still calling. He's still sending prophets. And Jeremiah is not even the last one. He's still sending prophets. He's still trying to point out the way. So the challenge to you and I is to ask ourselves these really important questions. And then in repentance, discover that God is amazingly merciful. Do you realize at this late date for you and I, do you realize at this late date, he still loves you and I in the way. He's still telling us the way. 
He's still revealing the way. And he loves you and I in the way. And he's still doing whatever it takes to get his children in the way. And the encouraging thing is, if we're really his child, all that the Father gives Jesus, what? He loses none. They will be in the way. They will. They will be repentant. They will hear the call to return. And they will return. They won't wander 18 blocks away. They won't. Oh, they'll wave and they'll draw attention to themselves and they'll, 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 we'll find ourselves doing that. But when God calls, we find ourselves turning back and saying, yes, Lord. And we're in the way. And we're rejecting and despising those things that are in the high places and we're rejecting and despising the things in the low places. And all we want And to love the one who first loved us. So I challenge you and me today to ask those questions. Let's hear the call to return. Let's hear the call and respond to the call to return and repent. And leave being a slave and a homebound servant. Enjoy life to the full. Amen? Lord, help us. Help us because we are people who firstly want to dig cisterns even though they hold no water. We think we can just dig the next one at will. We have deceived ourselves too many times into thinking that, that the Nile and Euphrates offer us something when they offer us nothing but bitterness and apostasy. Lord, help us to return. Repentantly return to the lover of our souls. Help us to return to worship you. To glory you.